This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. It's Friday, so you know the drill. It's time for the weekly news recap. Attorneys made their opening statements yesterday in a trial involving Lincoln Park High School's ex-principal. Still no word on what kind of investigation is underway at Dunbar Academy in Bronzeville. On Friday, though, we learned the principal and another school leader had been removed from their positions. But it appears that Mayor Lori Lightfoot will not face any petition challenges in her bid for re-election, and she's not planning to go after any of her challengers. But some of them are going after one another, which could winnow the field before the February 28th election. We got a lot to talk about. Our panel today is WTTW Channel 11 Chicago politics reporter Heather Sharon. Hey, Heather. Hey, Sasha. Also joining us is Alex Nitkin, a reporter for the Illinois Answers Project at the Better Government Association. Welcome back, Alex. Thank you. Good to be here. And Kate Grossman, senior education editor for WBEZ. Hey, Kate. Hi, Sasha. And I want to give a special shout out to the folks who are watching us break down the week's news live right now on the WBEZ Facebook and YouTube pages. You can also Watch this live stream on Reset's Facebook page. So we're going to start with the latest in the race for Chicago mayor. Five candidates are facing challenges that could knock them off the ballot. Can you explain, Heather? Well, to qualify for the ballot in Chicago as mayor, you have to collect at least 12,500 signatures. And that is not an easy task, which is why if you want to be assured of making the ballot, you turn in three times that number. And if you come in a little short, you leave yourself to vulner- vulnerable to challenges, which is what has really happened here. So as you know, the intro mentioned, Willie Wilson is facing a challenge, although he turned in more than 60,000 signatures. And I think there would be a lot of people very surprised if he is kicked off the ballot. But in a little bit more trouble are two lesser-known candidates, Frederick Collins, a Chicago police officer, and Johnny Logalbo, a freelance counselor, as well as Alderman Roderick Sawyer and Jamal Green. Uh, Alderman Roderick Sawyer apparently turned in uh, about 17,000 signatures, Mm. which is very, very low. And Jamal Green turned in about 30,000 signatures, which is also on the low side. So those four candidates are in trouble, and it will take the next several weeks of marathon hearings before the Chicago Board of Election Commissioners and hearing officers before we know exactly what the February 28th ballot in the race for mayor will look like. Is this pretty common, Alex, the uh, candidates challenging each other's signatures? It is. This is just another stage of uh, any Chicago election. We saw it during the lead up to the primary last uh, this this past year, too. Um, and it really, in a lot of ways, is a test of campaigns, um, internal organizing strength and infrastructure. Can they survive this first stage where they are? You know, it's not very public facing at all, as much as we journalists try to get down into the pedway and figure out what's going yeah. on. Um, just send their lawyers in there and make these sort of obscure legal arguments about this signature counts, this doesn't. Um, it weeded out a few candidates, including Jamal Green um, in the 2019 election. He dropped out of the race, as if I recall correctly, when it sort of became clear he was not going to make the ballot. And so I think we can probably expect a couple of candidates, not just at the mayoral level, but importantly also in those 50 aldermanic races to get uh, popped off the ballot. Heather, could this end up narrowing the field of black candidates for mayor? could. Both Green and Sawyer are black, and they are facing challenges, as is Frederick Collins. So that's three candidates um, that could find themselves out of luck because of this 
storied, hallowed uh, tradition. And I think that there will be some candidates who will breathe a sigh of relief because it has long, you know, races for mayor in Chicago has, has long been defined by race. And there's a sense that if you split the black vote, that that could make it harder for a black candidate to win or make it into the runoff, which is set for April 4th, if no candidate gets more than 50 percent of the vote. I, I don't know if that applies as much this year as it has in years past. But that is certainly part of the strategy involved here and why Willie Wilson is challenging Alderman Sawyer's petitions. Yeah. They both have their base of voters on the South side, so it's a zero-sum game. Those people are either going to vote for Wilson or they're going to vote for Sawyer in some cases. And Willie Wilson wants to make sure that he is the, you know, uh, alternative, the, the candidate left standing. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, Sasha, I'll just add, some of this stuff is... Um, it, it's not high-minded. You know, there's 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 long simmering disputes between candidates. You know, Alex mentioned that J. Malker Green, you know, got basically pushed off last time. Yeah. So there's dispute that he's still mad about. You know, there's Ricky Hendon, a former state senator, who's gotten his hand in here. So you that, kind of expected some of this? Right. I think it's just, just to remind people that uh, this is not a high-minded exercise about ensuring people's voices are heard. This is sometimes about settling old political It can get scores. very personal, and it's very tactical. Yeah, well, and, well, Alex, Kate mentions Ricky Hendon, State Senator Ricky Hendon. Tell us what's going on there, because this is one of the more publicized conflicts in the uh, petition signature spat. Yeah, they have a sort of long-running um, bad blood, I guess you could say. We heard about it from Claire just at the top of the hour here. The latest in this is that uh, Green released a a cell phone video of what he purports to be Ricky Hendon, who's a um, doesn't he's a, a senior advisor to the Willie Wilson campaign, supposedly telling a, uh, a worker for Green's campaign, "Hey, if you withdraw your uh, challenge against Wilson signatures, I'll I'll take care of you." Basically, I'll saying that it's a bribe. Um, this is to this point unverified. It's a little bit hard to spot the confirm the the voice, but what I think is really telling is that. Willie Wilson's response to this was not to deny it, but to instead distance himself from Hendon and say, well, I don't really know anything about what that guy does. Um, And also, as we also heard, Hendon um, has not denied it. Yeah. Well, speaking of spots on the ballot, we we know now which mayoral candidate is going to have the top spot. Who is it, Heather? And and how is how important is that? Well, it is Jamal Green. So if he stays on the ballot, he will have that first slot. And there's a school of thought out there that people who come to vote with maybe less information than other voters will be more inclined to choose the first person they see or the last person they see. So if Jamal Green makes it onto the ballot, he stands to benefit from that. But if he gets kicked off, the first spot will go to Alderman Sophia King. And the last spot is assured for U.S. Rep. Jesus Chuy Garcia, who was the only candidate to file at the deadline of 5 p.m on November 28th. So in the middle, all jumbled up in there will be Lori Lightfoot, Brandon Johnson, um, all of the other candidates, and their supporters will have to sort of look down that, you know, relatively lengthy list of candidates to find the one that they want to vote for and fill in that bubble, which, 
you know, some people say, you know, you want to get, make it easier on your voters, and that first slot could potentially do that. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we are going behind the headlines in the weekly news recap with Alex Nitkin, reporter for the Better Government Association, WTTW's Chicago politics reporter Heather Sharon, and Kate Grossman, senior education editor for WBEZ. All right, turning to you, Kate, we've got a couple of Chicago public schools related stories to take a look at. First one, uh, a Bronzeville teacher and another administrator, they were removed by CPS this week. What do we know? Um, so this is at Dunbar Career Academy. Um, the The principal and a... De- principal, principal, sorry, principal. Not, yeah. not teacher. Yeah, yeah. So the principal and um, a dean of culture were removed uh, very abruptly last week. Um, this is rare, not unheard of, but on occasion, CPS out of the blue will remove a principal, you know, pending an investigation. Um, You know, we've already seen it once. It happened at Jones College Prep earlier Mm -hmm. this year. Um, But it's highly disruptive, of course, especially for Dunbar is a small school. So everybody probably knows the principal and the dean of culture. It's a school that's struggling with low enrollment and has lost a lot of its programming. So this is, a you know, certainly a blow for the school. And there's also just a lot of upset at the school because, the CPS won't say what the investigation relates to, including the local school council. You know, they, they oversee the budget. They hire the principal. They're in charge of renewing the principal's contract. Yeah. They say they don't, you know, as of a couple of days ago, they have no idea. So it's, you know, it's highly disruptive. And, you Those know, are really important stuff. positions to go without. So, yeah. Suddenly. And they, I mean, and CPS always puts it, they have a pool of, Retired or sort of consultant principals. I see. But of course, it's it's not the same. Yeah. A, a lawsuit as well. This is uh, against the Chicago Public Schools by an ex-principal at Lincoln Park High School. Uh, that's been making headlines. So but before we get into the lawsuit, can you just give us the backstory here? Um, sure. So uh, in 2020, early in the year, um, the principal and the assistant principal were also abruptly fired. Um, although there, there was no secret or there, there was not shrouded in mystery there. Um, Basically, there was a basketball trip. Um, There was some sexual misconduct on the trip. There was a whistleblower that said he was a student retaliated against. And CPS said that the principal and the assistant principal who have an obligation to report, you know, wrong, you know, alleged wrongdoing. There's a whole protocol. Um, CBS said they bungled the whole thing and they didn't protect the whistleblower and they didn't follow all the protocols. And they were And this just, was sexual misconduct involving an adult? No. Student to students. Okay. Between students. Although there was other things came out related to the athletics program, which I don't want to speak out of school because it's been a couple of years. I don't remember actually all the details, but the primary incident involved student to right. student. Okay. Um so and no no misconduct sexual misconduct alleged by the principal and AP, just to be clear. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about their handling of the allegations. Gotcha. So they were just yanked, you know, literally within a matter of days. And, you know, the school community really loved them and were very upset. And um, and CPS stood by it. And um, and so one of the, the principal, um, well, actually, both the principal and the AP sued, uh, but it looks like the only only the principal's civil suit continued. Um, but it's it's in court this week. That's why it's back in the news. I see. And he is saying it, they ruined his career. He cannot work in education. He said he can't even his kid goes to CPS. He can't even coach his kids volleyball. 
team because he's on a like do not enter any school list. Goodness. And he can't make a living. He's um, and so it's a very, you know, the details matter, of course. But what I think is most interesting about this story is um, is CPS's response and who gets hurt. Right. CPS says, you know, we're about the kids, not the adults, you know, which makes a lot of sense. But there's there's been a really hard pendulum swing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the Tribune did an investigation a couple of years ago, actually, right before this uh, firing took place, where they found that CPS, there were all the kids who'd been abused and CPS wasn't protecting them. And so CPS sprang into action. They set up yeah. all these systems. And actually, this was one of the first cases. And they just, like, came down with a hammer. Wow. And, um, and they're, you know, this is a big, high-profile case. But we've heard of other cases, much quieter ones, a teacher, an administrator, who is being investigated, put on leave. And they feel like they've their lives have been ruined. And these cases tend to go on for a really, really long time. And they're in limbo. Um, and so there are these questions, I think important questions being raised about, of course, kids come first and you got to protect kids, but it has CPS potentially swung too hard in the opposite direction. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh, speaking of departures, another one here, Vice President of the Chicago Board of Education, Sendil Revoluri, announced after three years he's leaving. Why? Well, I don't think there's anything unusual about it. It was a surprise because he just announced it without you know, uh, previewing it, basically. Yeah. But he, he's been on since 2019. He was one of the Mayor Lori Lightfoot's original members of the board. There's actually now only two left, so all, all the other, which means all the other ones have already left. Um, they've, he's the fourth person to announce just this calendar year um, that they're leaving. Um, so it's not a big surprise. I don't think there's anything untoward in his announcement. He's, he's well-regarded. Um, but it does... I think the timing suggests that we got a mayoral election coming up. We have a pending transition to an elected school board. I'm speculating here he might be like, I've done my service. Yeah. <laughs> it's time for me to move on to other things. You know, that's a lot for anyone to. For sure. You know, it's yeah. a big, that's a tall task yeah. for those board members. All right. Let's turn to something very different. News involving inflatable holiday decorations and an Irish pub. Oh, nice. Heather. You wouldn't think this could involve politics, but, you know, it's Chicago. No surprises there. I was just going to say, of course it's political in Chicago. An Irish pub and inflatable holiday decorations do tell. So uh, there is a bar, and they celebrate the holidays by putting up giant inflatables like the ones you see in my suburban neighborhood of the Grinch and the Snowman and that sort of thing. The issue is is that those are not allowed in places where it can obstruct the view of pedestrians or drivers. So it appears as if Alderman Laspada, who is running for re-election, got a complaint about it and forwarded that to the Department of Transportation, which asked the bar to take down the inflatables. Now, the owners of the bar hosted uh, events for two of his uh, opponents, including former Alderman Proco Joe Moreno, and they have told various and assorted media organizations that they believe that this order was political retaliation and had nothing to do with the fact that these inflatables posed a risk to people using Chicago's streets and sidewalks. But this is very, very 
very common in an election season uh, where everything sort of starts to seem political. But it would, of course, be a, a dereliction of duty by any elected official to take action against a, pri- a private business because they supported somebody else mm-hmm. but the current office holder. And I'm sure nothing like that has ever happened in Chicago. But um, I've yet to see any <laughs> definitive answers in, in this case. And for those who are curious, we're talking about the Irish Nobleman Pub on West Erie in a West Town neighborhood. All right, switching gears, Alex, a former Chicago detective is suing the city and CPD. What's he alleging? That's right. Isaac Lambert, excuse me, Isaac Lambert was a police detective who was um, essentially demoted without any, as far as he could tell, real substantive uh, reason. Um, even his supervisor, the at the time um, Area 2 detective uh, the commander um, named Rodney Blissett, couldn't offer an explanation. And we actually saw Blissett testify um, in this uh, 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 lawsuit recently. Um, essentially, Lambert is alleging that he was demoted as a form of retribution for uh, being asked or pressured into altering documents over a police shooting. Um, so it's a really, really big accusation. Um, and it's something that is probably going to reverberate. And it's something that, you know, really gets at this issue of, um, you know, this sort of rather rather than the idea of police misconduct being a few bad apples, the idea that there are these orders from on high uh, yeah. that are that are sort of aiding this. I mean, if you think back to why the uh, Laquan McDonald shooting got to the uh, uh, level that it did, it was not just because of one police officer who murdered a teenager. It was because of, um, you know, this entire infrastructure and architecture that sort of closed ranks around him right. and tried to change the story and do the cover-up. So systemic issue. Yeah. It's a systemic issue that we should note that um, Lambert, the plaintiff, is really trying to, he said his goal is really to force some kind of systemic change in the department to try to um, blot out this kind of uh, um, code of silence or culture of trying to um, cover up anything that makes police look bad. Yeah. We can probably, though, guess that this will more likely end up in a, a settlement, which is where a lot of these police misconduct cases go, and there's yeah. not necessarily any guarantee of systemic change. Yeah. And, and before we take a quick break, another one for you, Alex. A CTA employee has been charged with stealing more than $350,000 from the agency's retirement fund. What's the scheme that they're alleging here? So this is a former CTA clerk who was found uh, indicted in federal court on wire fraud charges. Um, She allegedly created dozens of false pension payment requests to basically try to fabricate um, employees who who are looking for pension payouts. Uh, The upshot was that she basically robbed the CTA pension fund of more than $350,000. One, you know, potential little uh, 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 consolation or bright spot in this is that um, apparently the CTA discovered this internally in like a routine audit as opposed to, yeah. you know, some kind of outside probe, which which indicates that, you know, maybe the agency is trying to sort of get its house in order. Another thing to remember is that an employee stealing from the pension fund is really just her stealing from her herself, herself and really <laughs> her coworkers and all of the other employees. Yeah. Large, the pensions are owed to all of the employees after their retirement. They have to be paid one way or another. And the CTA just like the city and the state is on this legally mandated ramp where every year um, employees are going to have to uh, uh, contribute a little more and a little more to their pension funds. And so any shortfall in that um, is just going to have to be paid by everyone else. 
All right, we're going to pick up with the weekly news recap in just a moment with journalists Heather Sharon, Alex Nitkin, and Kate Grossman. Back now with more Reset. I'm your host, Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, it's our weekly news recap where we make sense of the week's top local and state stories. Now, before the break, we took a close look at the mayoral race, but there's much more to get to. Governor Pritzker was not advocating for Illinois to join other states who allow for consumers to order online and have their weed delivered like pizza. But today he said he supports the idea. Uber Eats has reached a settlement with the city of Chicago to repay restaurants millions of dollars over alleged violations during the pandemic. An elite private school in Chicago is facing online criticism after a dean was apparently recorded by a right-wing activist group talking about the school's sex ed programming. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker signing off on amendments to the Safety Act before it goes into effect on January 1st. Our panel today is WTTW Channel 11 Chicago politics reporter Heather Sharon, Alex Nitkin, a reporter for the Illinois Answers Project at the Better Government Association, and Kate Grossman, senior ed- education editor for WBEZ. A reminder that we are online right now on WBEZ's YouTube page, so feel free to comment or leave a question. Talk to us in the YouTube chat, and I may just read what you have to say about these news stories on the air. All right, over to you first, Heather. Governor Pritzker signed the amendment to the criminal justice package, which is known as the Safety Act. How does the amendment actually change this bill? Well, it does not change it significantly, although it does seek to sort of tie up some loose ends that were, of course, a major issue in the November election. And one of the things it does is that it gives judges more ability to hold people in jail whom they think either have, you know, are likely to have committed a very serious violent crime or pose a direct threat, not only to an individual, but uh, the community. And it also makes it clear that people who are in jail on December 31st will not be released on January 1st when the new law goes into effect, that essentially everyone in jail can sort of reapply to get out on bail if they are, you know, if they want to and if they are eligible for it, Mm -hmm. but that there's not going to be any sort of massive release, release, which is, I think, part of what the misinformation was that was so much at issue during the election. But even though this bill has now been signed in to law by Governor Pritzker, uh, it's not the final word on whether it will go into effect. There is a court hearing set for December 20th. Um, A number of state attorneys from around the state have sued to stop its implementation. So we won't know for at least another 10 days or so about whether the law will change on January 1st as part of really a, a concerted effort by Democrats in the General Assembly to remake Illinois' criminal justice system in an attempt to reverse really just decades of systemic racism that yeah. they say have done nothing to make cities and towns and villages safer. Now, in other news, Alex, the city of Chicago has reached a settlement with Uber Eats. This is over deceptive practices. These food delivery apps, they became even more popular during the pandemic. So talk about the details of this settlement here. Yeah, this all dates back to an ordinance that the city council passed in 2020, sort of at the depths of the pandemic, that was really trying to crack down on the sort of gouging of delivery fees, of commission fees, by these third-party delivery apps like Postmates. Um, and a lot of restaurants were really complaining, saying, hey, we're really reliant on these third-party apps, and they're, they're charging us these you know, 20 30 40% commissions and, and um, making it much harder to do business. And so the city council passed an ordinance setting a 15% cap on those commissions. The city then came back and sued 
um, saying, hey, you've, you've just been ignoring the rules and charging the, whatever commissions you want anyway. And so this is a $10 million settlement that Uber Eats and Postmates have agreed to pay. $8.5 million of that is going to the restaurants. The rest goes to the city. Um, and yeah, I think it just goes to show the really delicate and, and complicated relationship the restaurants have with these apps that are mm-hmm. definitely not going away. And um, we'll have to see how they behave and how much more they become part of the sort of restaurant fixture, especially after they've been caught doing this. How they behave, yeah, for sure. Well, the state might be opening the door to another kind of delivery service very soon, Alex. On Wednesday, the governor had this to say about the idea of whether marijuana could one day be delivered just like your favorite food. At first blush and without the data in front of me, you know, I think that as long as it is regulated as long as we make sure that the person who's ordering it gets it uh, and that they're legally allowed to, then it would seem to me like, you know, the same as somebody coming into a store. So other states are already doing this, Alex. You can probably, uh, you, you can pretty much order anything you want from an app at this point. So do you think that we might soon see the equivalent of an Uber weed? Uh, I think maybe. I think that it's it's sort of a natural progression now that especially at long, long, long last, the uh, first social equity applicants are finally actually opening, which is what the governor was um, sort of touting and celebrating there. The conversation was always going to be, okay, what's the next step in the legal uh, regulation, deregulation process? Um, Delivery was definitely one of those ideas that has come up. And I think that this was really the governor, if not necessarily endorsing, then acknowledging like, yes, this is one idea that's out there that um, the state could run with. Another one is on-site consumption. This is something that um, the legislators who crafted that original legislation, I think, always wanted to get to at some point. We're already starting to see some dispensaries sort of trying to get ahead of it by um, designing little like lounge spaces, like sort of weed bars where they are, um, I think that we're going to continue seeing these kinds of ideas um, develop until, you know, with the ultimate goal of a legal marketplace that is saturated to the point where it outcompetes the black market, which mm-hmm. we are a long way from that point right now. Yeah, hey, Alex, can I ask, I wonder, do you know if, if to, in order to deliver weed, would there are there any legal hurdles or legislation that needs to be passed? Oh, to be the delivery person? Yeah, I just wondered if... You know, the governor said he's open to it, but a good question. do you know what are the mechanisms? Are there any hurdles that Illinois would have to go through to to make that happen? Do you, I'm just curious. I think it would know. just it would just have to build out a whole legal infrastructure through the Department of um, Professional and Financial and Professional Regulation IDP, IDFPR. There are already a whole bunch of rules um, restricting how pot can be sold. It has to be in these dispensaries in specific spots um, with a whole lot of security, and so. Just a lot of rules are going to have to be written into it mm-hmm. saying, here's how you can get a license for that. Here's how they'd have to do it. Um, and so it's just probably a lot of minutia, no single specific, thing. For yeah. sure, for sure. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We are going behind the headlines in the weekly news recap. That's Alex Nitkin, reporter for the Better Government Association, WTTW Channel 11 Chicago politics reporter Heather Sharon, and Kate Grossman, senior education editor for WBEZ. Over to you, Kate, because we're going to take a look at a story involving the Francis Parker School, right? That's um, an elite private school, right, in in Lincoln Park. What's going on? So um, the school is sort of facing really a torrent of online harassment um, this week after a conservative group posted a video um, of the dean of students at the school. Um, They've had to increase police presence, new security measures. And the video shows the dean of students describing um, 
a visit by an LGBTQ health organization to the school, a session, an optional session for high schoolers about queer sexual health. Uh-huh. And the session included discussion of and um, of sex toys. So that's so that's that's the heart of the controversy. But I mean, and how old are these kids? High schoolers. Okay, high schoolers. But the you know the the reason. What's really important to know about this story is that this was a secretly recorded video of the dean who was at an education conference last week. And the school says that um, someone presented himself to the dean as another attendee at the conference and invited him to coffee mm-hmm. and to have a conversation. And he secretly recorded him. Um, and then they, you know, put this video out. It, it's incredibly salacious and the group that did, that put this out, it's called Project Veritas. People may have heard of it. They're basically an online sting operation. They call themselves journalists, but I, they're the a conservative of, group, right? Yeah. They they don't use journalism tactics, um, and they have they go after progressive organizations and news outlets. They went after NPR a couple of years ago, and they've gone after the Washington Post and bunch of other organizations and they try to you know expose them shame them and they they you know another reason why they're not journalists is they're they have a clear agenda they're trying to yeah. take down you know LGBTQ but um they have gotten a lot of play the video has been seen nearly 5 million times wow and it's circulating and among all the right wing folks uh with the hashtag you know expose groomers oh boy um so you know and they're using it to raise money now you know there's a legitimate question to ask like is it appropriate to have sex toys in a high school session that's a legitimate question but this is not a they're not looking for a constructive conversation about what's the best way to do queer sexual health or to do queer sexual health at all yeah in a school um so, and you know, it's important to note this is a private school, and so obviously if parents didn't want it, they yeah. presumably would make that known. Um, so this is really a story more about harass- online harassment that, you know, could be a story about, like, what's the best way to deal with sex ed, but that that's not really what this is about. I mean, it sounds like this group is just reaching to kind of revive this uh, very old, you know, pernicious and sort of harmful myth trying to tie LGBT teachers to you know, grooming or pedophilia or something like mm-hmm. that. It's really been weaponized in a pretty ugly way. And you can see that a group like this is just trying to, I think, deceptively try to to, to move it in that direction. Yeah. I mean, there's no question. It's just, it's, um, it's you know, it's been rough yeah, for the school. Yeah. Well, Heather, switching gears, the developer of uh, Chicago's proposed casino uh, they held a community engagement meeting on, on Monday night. Did they reveal anything more to the River West residents ab- about what the plans are? Well, I think that the plans originally called for an outdoor music venue, which was very controversial because the casino is going to be right along the riverfront. And that could mean a lot of light pollution, noise pollution, and a lot of people that could harm what's a recovering but still fragile river ecosystem. So those plans have been dropped. They were really never formally part of the casino. It was just sort of, you know, as part of the, you know, renderings and schematics. So I think that that is going to be something that River West residents um, appreciate. Um, But we are still in a holding pattern. So the Mm. temporary casino is set to open in the Medina Temple at Ohio and Wabash this summer. 
And then the permanent casino wouldn't, you know, isn't even slated to open until 2026. But we're still waiting for the Illinois Gaming Board to issue a license to Bally's to operate this uh, casino. And until that happens, they can't really do anything. Yeah. So there's certainly no indication that the gaming board is, you know, concerned or preparing to reject it or anything. But it, it is an indication that this is a very long, complicated process that, you know, was never going to sort of be the type of, you know, open door begin playing slots and back right. and back, you know, and back or at right away that I think a lot of people expected. And there are still a lot of questions about what impact both the temporary casino and the permanent casino are going to, is going to have on this area, you know, with traffic and in terms of just changes to the fabric mm-hmm. of what is a, a very residential area, more so the permanent casino than the, the temporary casino. But it, it will be a big change for both. Yeah, our friend on YouTube, Shamrock Bloom, agrees, Heather. Uh, Shamrock says, not liking the idea of a casino in River West. Too much congestion and overbuilding, and gambling is typically viewed as a tax on lower-income people. I think that a big part of—sorry, Heather. I think that a big part of the city's challenge here is to show how a casino is going to actually be integrated into the surroundings, into the neighborhood. This is something that has really been a part of their messaging, and especially some of the recent concessions that they've made, sort of linking to the Riverwalk and making it a natural part of the environment. But uh, a casino really— almost by design everywhere you look is is a kind of um, standalone inward facing kind of monolith there are no windows um, it's all very uh, just just a sort of standalone thing so where as you hear and I'm going to be tuning into the the Chicago Plan Commission on Monday is going to be talking about this sort of newest iteration of the design we're probably going to hear them talking about how you know it fits really well it's not it's a collection of experiences where the casino is just one they're going yeah. to use Landscape architect's favorite word, which is porous. It's going to be so porous. There are going to be people spilling in and out all the time. Um, But I don't know, just a sort of inherent contradiction to think about. Well, here's a follow-up question from Shamrock Bloom online. Heather, why do we need a temporary casino? Well, I first want to say that Alex took the words right out of my mouth. So thank you for doing that, Alex. Um, And we need a temporary casino because the city needs this money right now, yesterday, Six months ago. So (laughs) all of the revenue that the city gets from the casino is earmarked to pay off its just massive pension debt. So every dollar that the city gets means that they won't have to spend that dollar on pension debt and can put it towards police services or mental health services or really anything else. So the city wants to get this casino and gambling up and running as soon as possible. And this is going to replace what is now the Chicago Tribune Freedom Center, which which is where the paper is printed and where the Tribune has their offices and newsroom. So there is a lot of construction that needs to take place on what is now, uh, you know, essentially a warehouse to turn it into a destination with streets and sidewalks and grass and, and, you know, building. So it's, there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. Well, uh, another story here before we take a pause, Alex. A Chicago-based architect was awarded one of the highest honors in the profession. This is the gold medal from the American Institute of Architects. Her name's Carol Ross Barney. What are some of her more notable works in the city? Carol Ross Barney has been really active. If you don't know her name, you probably know... I've seen her work. Yeah, you've seen her all over the place. I mean, she was the lead designer of the Chicago Riverwalk, which I think has in the past 10 years, just become an instantly iconic Chicago space. Mm-hmm. Um, she designed the visitor, the Searle Visitor Center at 
Lincoln Park Zoo with these cool sort of like thatched overlapping uh, platforms. Um, she designed the CTA Morgan stop uh, the Pink Line and Green Line in Fulton Market, which opened about 10 years ago and has this sort of cool, you know, blocky warehouse chic design <laughs> matching the rest of the neighborhood. I got to say where I personally draw the line, she also designed the um, replacement of the late lamented Rock and Roll McDonald's in River North, oh. which a replacement I can personally only describe as, frankly, a, a smooth jazz McDonald's <laughs> at best. Um, smooth jazz. It left a, you know, giant guitar-sized hole in my heart, and I miss it. <laughs> I can't with you and the puns. We're going to take a quick pause here on the weekly news recap, and we'll be back in just a moment with Alex Nitkin of the Better Government Association, Kate Grossman of WBEZ, and WTTW's Heather Sharon. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We are back with more of our weekly news recap, giving you a closer look at the week's top stories across Chicago and Illinois. Before the break, we got the latest on the casino plans for Chicago, but we've got more to get to. And still here with us, Chicago journalists Kate Grossman, Heather Sharon, and Alex Nitkin. We're still live right now on Facebook and YouTube for those of you who prefer to watch. So, Kate, faculty at the University of Illinois at Chicago, they've announced a potential strike date. What's the latest? Um, So, yeah, so they authorized a strike last month, and they've set uh, January 17th as a strike date. Okay. That's a week after classes begin, so it's very well-timed to have students come back. Maximum disruption. (laughs) Maximum drama. Right. No accident. Absolutely. Right. Uh, So I guess they've been uh, without a contract since August. This Mm -hmm. is the faculty union, 900 members. Um, The issues are about... uh, pay, workload, also about mental health that, you know, faculty say that, you know, students, because of the pandemic, have had more mental health issues. They want more support for mental health for them, for students and themselves. Um, so we'll see. You know, this is this is what happens, right? They they feel like negotiations have been dragging on. Mm-hmm. And so they light the fire. Um, and it's it's to the season, you know, Northern Illinois faculty are also making a lot of noise about their contract. They attended, they sat in at the Board of Trustees meeting yesterday. Um, I, we just hired a higher ed reporter and we were talking about beat coverage this week. And I said, uh, let's not turn into the <laughs> labor relations higher ed reporter. We want to cover these things. But, you know, this stuff could end up being a full time. There's beat. a lot. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, this is a reflection um, you know, UIC, there was a faculty strike in 2014. Um, this is and so this is a reflection of, you know, the underfunding, I think, of higher ed in Illinois that's been going on for decades. And, you know, there's some been some recovery um, in the last couple of years, but they're sort of nowhere near where they need to be. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's probably one of the core issues. We'll be seeing more of this, it sounds like. Yeah. yeah. Uh, over at the School of the Art Institute, there's there was an online petition. It was circulating to rescind an honorary degree, and it's happened. So, Kate, fill us in. We're talking about yay here. Yeah. So, um, so he didn't graduate from the School of the Art Institute, but he's a Chicago guy. And so a couple of years ago, the School of the Art Institute gave him an honorary degree. And then, as you said, there was this online petition to say, you know, yank it. Um, And obviously, as I'm sure everybody knows, this is just the latest yanking for ye. This, you know, there was Adidas, Gap, um, and, you know, the things he he keeps doing, anti-black, anti-Semitic. Yeah. um, You know, the latest he posted a anti-Semitic 
thing on Twitter. I guess his Twitter account now is suspended again. Correct. Um, so th- this story interests me in part just because it's a reminder of his Chicago connections. Mm-hmm. You know, other people outside the rest of in the country might forget, but but folks here think of him as a Chicago guy. Yeah, more than four thousand signatures as of yesterday afternoon mm-hmm. um, raised or signed for this thing. So yeah, a lot of people uh, wanted that to go. Yeah. For sure. Um, Chicago moved from low COVID risk to medium right after the Thanksgiving holidays. I don't know if there are plenty of surprises there, but what are you hearing from CPS, Kate, about the COVID situation in the classrooms? So, I will say I'm getting fewer emails lately about oh, COVID outbreaks, which which good. has been nice as the parent. Yeah. You know, I took a look right before I came on at the latest COVID numbers and The COVID numbers in CPS in general, this is reported cases by students and faculty and also, um, you know, whatever testing happens. They've actually remained low and pretty consistently low all fall. Um, There's a little bit of a spike last week, but not a huge one. I think um, on December 5th, there were 164 student cases in the whole school district. Okay. That's not to say there aren't more cases, like obviously not everybody reports them, but I don't, we're not in a crisis point by any means, but everybody is saying holidays are coming. We have flu, RSV, you know, and COVID likely to surge. You know, mm-hmm. the school district is at, at lots of, in their website at the board of education meeting, they're, they're saying max masks, even though they're not required, highly recommended. They're urging kids to get vaccinated. The vax rates remain quite low in CPS. Um, particularly at certain schools. Yeah. And and while you're on that point, we want to make sure that everyone who's listening and watching us knows that tomorrow is actually the last day to get your flu and your COVID shots in order to have maximum protection over the Christmas holidays. Good to so know. very key date to, to keep in mind. Um, if you're going to be traveling over the holidays, though, you might be passing through O'Hare. And guess what? It was just named the best, one of the best airports in North America. That's according to Global Traveler magazine. What does everyone think of that? And I'm talking to you folks on YouTube, too. I I want to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly as far as your O'Hare experience. Heather, any thoughts? Well, I can attest personally. I flew through O'Hare to Alabama to visit my brother just last week and had a delightful experience in Uh. O'Hare. I even had the the benefit of flying out of Terminal 3, which meant I got to have lunch at um, the uh, delightful Rick Bayless restaurant there. And I did silently judge everybody in line for McDonald's and Popeye's when they have literally gourmet Mexican food at O'Hare. I'm sure they were judging you too. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, but it's clear that O'Hare is nearly back, if not completely back, from the the pandemic-imposed sort of travel drop. It it was busy. There were lots of people. There were not very many masks, which, you know, I think can be really a source of concern Mm -hmm. sometimes. But it it was very much business as usual at O'Hare. And I know that's really good news for the city because the city really gets just a massive amount of of tax money and business, you know, through the airport um, and and are glad to see it operating normally. Well, Heather, I'm just glad that you're never there when I'm at Terminal 5 getting my Burger King. Um, (laughs) Alex, you made a face there. What what do you think of O'Hare? I have mixed feelings about O'Hare. Best airport in North America? 
Uh, you know, I haven't been to every airport in North America. <laughs> I've always really wanted to go to PDX, the famous Portland one, to compare that one that su- supposedly everyone loves for some reason. But, um, you know, my partner really likes to prefers to fly out of Midway because it's just smaller and more convenient. I can appreciate that. Um, I personally really like the just sort of grandiosity of O'Hare, mm-hmm. especially those really big, beautiful concourses in, in Terminals 1 and 3 with all the flags. Um, I think that the uh, uh, worst part about O'Hare for me is all the tarmac traffic and all the delay when you're sitting out there. There are just so many planes uh, waiting to take off all the time, and it's always really busy. Um, and also, a couple months ago, I flew out of Terminal 5, and hopefully this is temporary because they're just going through you know, some construction right now, but man, it, w- it was bad. It was like <laughs> being in a haunted house in more ways than one. Our friend Angela online says, I have to say, I've never had an airport experience that I considered anything close to pleasant. Yeah, Angela, I'm kind of right behind you. Um, All right, we've got to switch gears and turn to sports real quick before we run out of time, because World Cup fever does continue, even though the U.S. did get knocked out last weekend. There were still some celebrations all throughout this week in Hyde Park, and that's because the Maroons, that's the University of Chicago men's soccer team, they won their first Division Three NCAA championship. And we talked earlier this week on Reset with Coach Julianne Sitch about that victory. Let's listen. I think, you know, for myself, honestly, as I'm getting choked up, it's just been very emotional. You know, I never envisioned this mm. at all. And I think this is just phenomenal for women across the board. You know, I grew up watching men. I, from a very young age, wanted to be a professional athlete. And the people that filled my bedroom wall were men's soccer players until 1999 when the Women's World Cup and they won, you know, and Brandi Chastain, the iconic, ripped her shirt off and, you know, women's soccer blew up in the U.S. And, you know, from that moment, it was where I could truly believe in my dreams to be a professional soccer player. Yeah, very, very historic moment. She's a a first-year coach and uh, the first woman to win an NCAA men's soccer title. So congratulations again to the team and Coach Sitch. Um, Before we go, Alex, I want to first give a shout-out to the nearly 2,000 people representing 120 countries. They were sworn in as U.S. citizens at uh, Wintrust Arena this week, and that's record-breaking because it's the largest citizenship ceremony ever in Chicago. Wow, here's uh, Governor Pritzker. Whatever your journey has been, whether you fled violence like my great-grandfather, whether you won the green card lottery, whether you came here for school or for a job or for a loved one, or whether this is the only country that you've ever known, I'm so very proud to stand beside you as your fellow citizen. We shouldn't forget that migrants are still regularly being bused here from the Texas border, Alex. We're getting close to 4,000 people now? Yeah, I believe it's about 3,700 now that it's just been this drip, drip, drip coming up from Texas. And I thought that it was really interesting to see this contrast of the thing that I really took away from this gigantic ceremony, swearing-in ceremony at Winterest Arena, is that here in Chicago— we're really trying to draw attention to and celebrate the fact that there are so many, you know, immigrants who are choosing this place. You know, that's why it's in this big public place and why the, the governor came, um, because here, you know, we tend to a lot. Most of us see immigration as a real benefit, especially when the city is trying to add population as like a social, economic, cultural and just a moral good. Um, so yeah. it's just interesting to contrast that against these leaders from other states who think that they're um, 
I don't know, trying to make some kind of political point by by like busing people who, by the way, are not undocumented people who are asylum seekers and who are in the pipeline. Correct. To yeah. become uh, uh, full, full, uh, you know, legal residents. Um, so it's yeah. also important to remember that of these 2000 people who are made citizens, there are already there are still almost 700,000 people waiting for a citizenship some for years. Um, oh, yeah. So these are the, the lucky few. The backlog is real. We'll have to leave it there. That's the weekly news recap. My thanks to Alex Nitkin, reporter for the Illinois Answers Project at the Better Government Association, Heather Sharon of WTTW, and Kate Grossman, senior education editor for WBEZ. Thank you all.